There will be spoilers ahead. Lots of spoilers, so be careful, won't you? Hey there, all you daddy-os and mommy-os. This here's Capybara Man Max, livin' and jivin' with you from WMMM Studios. And that you haven't seen that? Part 2 Superpower Flower Hour! We're going to be giving away tickets to see Spellbo the Clown and his glands of renown down at Medium Size Mike's Dancitorium later in the hour. But right now, the Capybara Man's going to spin you some rock and roll straw into gold with this week's movie, American Graffiti, directed by gorgeous George Lucas. And to kick things off with a rockin' early 60s bang is that bad boy of the Speedway, Mike the Trike Loose. Say hey to our listeners, Mike. Spellbo? Very famous act in the early 60s. You can't disprove it. Don't deny it. I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> he's, he's too obscure. You wouldn't have heard of it. The internet's never heard of it. Ah, hipster! I knew it! <laughs> <laughs> yes, but no, we are here. We are now. We are one. But first, the poll question. Poll question. What movie that you saw as a child still makes you feel that same way as an adult? Ralph Smith writes, and he is the first of a number, The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Nick Hoffman says The Three and Four Musketeers, the Richard Lester version from 73. That's actually important to clarify. Is that the one with Michael York in it? Yeah, this it is. Okay. Brian Mundo writes, The never-ending story. <laughs> How do you write in tune? <laughs> uh, you think that was in tune? Uh, well, no. <laughs> From our scholar, Adam Mark, I agree with The Wizard of Oz, 1939. Thanks for that. The story is so earnest. Garland's young talent and vulnerability is so stunning. Every performer at the absolute top of their game. The obvious production care taken in each scene. Cinema firsts for special effects scene by scene. The transcendent score and the eternal and evocative American stories of striking out on your own, of facing injustice, of found families, the yearning for home wherever it may be, and the evocation of youth and hope in the face of danger and darkness. It's a masterpiece that throws down the gauntlet, this is what movies can be. It is the standard bearer almost a full century later to which so many genres spanning musicals, fantasy, adventure, and children's films are compared. I never get tired of seeing it. One of my favorite things with cinema is watching each of my nieces watch The Wizard of Oz for the first time year after year as they've grown. The munchkins still enchant, the scarecrow's dance still captivates, the tin man's softer performance still holds your attention, the lion's comedy endures, the monkeys still terrify, and the witch's laugh still makes every single person in the house from two years to 78 years shudder. It's just amazing, and if a person states they do not like The Wizard of Oz, I earnestly challenge whether they even truly like cinema at all. Wow, that was pretty amazing. That is a declaration among declarations. Yeah. I feel when you, when you first were reading it, when you said, when a young girl strikes out, oh, that's sad. On her own, oh, that kind. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Dorothy yes. strikes out. The original title of The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yes, it is important to timelines and say dialogue. <laughs> Chuck Mock says, four musketeers, skipped over the three, okay, mash, 
Being there, Private Benjamin. My mom took me to the first two at the Harvard Square Theater in its glory days. Mm. Uh, Wait. The other two we saw at Fresh Pond, and I commented that after seeing one, we could go in the bathrooms and then into the other movie, so we did. Oh, you little thief. Naughty! <laughs> now wait, MASH as a child? Yeah, hang on. All four taking you back to my childhood, although you probably meant a different kind of emotional response. No, I don't think we did. No. Nope. You saw MASH as a child? Yeah. That's, that's, that's wow, like my that's mom taking intense. me to see Animal House. <laughs> yeah. Guess what uh, Kelly, Kelly J. Cooper writes The Court Jester, starring Danny Kaye. Oh, mm. which may have been my answer to another of your questions. But I watched it enough. To, I don't know. Apparently, we're not going to know which question. No, she's used I, it before. Oh, okay. But but I watched it enough times that it never really lost the joy for me. Bruce Herr Jr. also says the never-ending story, I still cry when Artax dies. Aww. Spoiler. <laughs> See our episode last week. Amber Stevens writes, Gone with the Wind and E.T. Interesting pairing, but I get it. No, no, they're, they're sequels. It's true. Look it up. As E.T. Hey. never go hungry again. <laughs> Frankly, E.T., I don't give a damn. <laughs> Brian Mundo writes Fifth Element. Now you're just making things up. Brian. Well, it's because he's a meat popsicle. <laughs> Tyler Stewart just writes Star Wars. And we know which movie he means. Yeah. We didn't even have to look, like nope. ask nope. or poke or anything. Val Coons, Empress of Q Footsteps. Q Footsteps? What's that? Why, that's another podcast that everyone should check out. Oh. She writes, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Uh, Sierra episode on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Mm. It's the one movie I remember going to in the theater to see. We went three weeks in a row. Wow. <laughs> it was probably my fault. That was a big deal back then. <laughs> and The Wizard of Oz, of course. It always felt so magical when they showed it on TV, and it still feels that way now. Haley Paulson writes, It's Return to Oz for me. Huh. I was morbidly fascinated by it as a child. Yeah, one of the children's movies I am not convinced children should see. I like that movie. <laughs> I do too, but it's not for kids. Well... And rewatched it many times as an adult. And all of the parts that spooked me as a kid still hold up. The Wheelers, Princess Mombi, the Gnome King, all of them still give me that terrified little thrill. Mm. Matt Reisman says, I hate to pick franchise movies, but I think that's kind of why they're milked to death now. Mm. Raiders of the Lost Ark, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and of course, Star Wars. I mean, come on, Raiders. If you were, because I was yeah. older. When Raiders came out, I was, what, 15, 16, 1980, I think, 81. Um, how could you not, like, if you're yeah. special, if you had any interest in history and stuff, because Matt's a big, I happen to know, is a big history buff. How yeah. could you not just be like, oh, this is the best thing ever? Yep. So. Ursula Murray Husted. Husted? I think it's Husted. Husted, excuse me. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Oh, oh wow. That is a an interesting choice. A funny mix of adventure, humor, and sadness creeping in around the edges. That's a complex choice. Wow. I think that describes every Terry Gilliam film ever made. Yeah, I, quite possibly. <laughs> Pete Krychek, The Sound of Music. Oh, yeah. And, of course, Vince or Wuthnakichika which means slayer of all things penguin in Canadian. No, it doesn't. Uh, yes, it does. You're I'm totally lying. Saw it. Oh, completely how it sounds in, in Canadian. It's a very, Listen, very, Klingon. It's a very guttural language. Actually, huh? you're a lepton. 
Well, you're a muon, so bite me. <laughs> a film I saw as a child and affects me the same way is Disney's Pinocchio. Mm. I always well up near the end when he's face down in the water. I forget that I know what happens next because the image is so strong. Yeah. Yeah. That was really yeah, brave of Disney, that. especially early on. Yeah, we're going to kill the hero. Mm-hmm. Oh, spoiler. <laughs> it's an 83-year-old film. I don't care. I hope yeah, it shouldn't be a spoiler. So, what about you, Mike? What uh, what film that you saw as a kid still hits you the same way? I think if I had to just pick one, I'm going to have to go with Ilsa, She Wolf of the SS. <laughs> yeah, of course. Wait, what? <laughs> Yeah, when I saw that as a kid, you're, it's like that, that I fear, that lying, horror, Grandpa. that disgust. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I would like to have picked something really cool in out there. I think Wizard of Oz, possibly because it was a an event, and you only got one chance a year to see it, period, when we were kids, because there were no VHS tapes or DVDs or rentals or anything. And so if you missed it, and I do remember missing it more than once and not being happy about that, you had to wait a whole year to see it. So it was, I think, partially beloved because of its scarcity. I don't know about you. I did actually get to see it in the theater once. Oh, I'm not sure I ever did. Yeah. I was this big, this, I don't know, with some sort of club or something that where they were showing really big films in the, what at that point was the biggest screen in Boston at the Wang Center. And they had presentations and stuff. And the funniest part was they had got one of the actors who played a munchkin was there. Oh. Oh, and I was with a couple of friends of ours, Stephen Tony Kellner, and they, the local host, Frank Avruch, otherwise known as Bozo the Clown, uh, (laughs) (laughs) said, oh, we have somebody with us. We have one of the original munchkins. Would you mind standing up? And the person stood up and I am looking everywhere to try and find this person. And finally, Tony taps me on the shoulder and says, "Um, Mike, she's right in front of you. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Because I was looking elsewhere, but whatever. That's because Mike's an idiot. Uh, so I, yeah, I'll probably go with that. How about you? Oddly enough, mine wasn't a children's movie, but I was very young when I first saw "It's a Wonderful Life." Oh, and it always oh, it still gets me, especially the ending sequence. I, I, it just hits me just as hard. Yeah, same here. Honestly, though, this was a tougher question for me than I would have thought because. Most of the movies don't hit me the same way no. as I was when I was a kid because I'm not a kid anymore. It's Yes, I, I, I love The Wizard of Oz. It's a genius movie. It's wonderful to watch. I can't look at it without thinking, oh, God, poor Judy Garland and what happened to her. See, I, don't... I, I can't help looking at it and thinking about Buddy Ebsen almost dying from the Tin Man makeup. I don't go there, but I always get to the end, and I think I even had this problem when I was a kid, when they, oh, what have you learned? I've learned never to leave home, yeah. that everything I need's right here, and That's traveling's a bad idea. Wait, The what? message of the movie, that part of it, I mean, I, I liked uh, what Adam said about the idea of striking out on your own and found family. Those messages really resonate, and I right. think they're much better. But yeah, the the ostensible stated message of the movie, which is, you know, if I'm looking for something, I'll never need to look farther than my own backyard. Uh, well, and here's something I can't help but wonder. It literally just occurred to me. I wonder if somebody making this film wasn't against the U.S. getting involved in World War II. Oh, uh, wow. That's kind of a stretch. Is it? Well, we should was, keep our eyes and stuff around us and not look into other places. You I, could argue that it's a, a call for isolationism, I guess, but it's. I think you were right the first time. It's more of a thing of don't travel, don't, you know, 
don't don't go anyplace. Yeah, keep keep all your thoughts the same. Don't yeah, don't yeah. think. But anyway, and, and don't be in color. We're not doing the Wizard of Oz this week. No, no. someday maybe we will. We should. Yeah. But again, thank you. These were all great uh, great answers, and because you keep giving us great answers, we're going to keep coming up with mediocre questions for you. Like, well, this one, this movie this week has an amazing soundtrack. If you if you like that sort of thing, it's got an incredible lengthy one. Made me think of what is your favorite concert movie, either music or comedy. Oh, I see what you're saying. So stand-up yeah. concert as opposed to yeah, exactly. Okay. You know, like Robin, yeah, Robin Williams specials or whoever. Sure. And like, what kind of co- what concert movies? Pink Floyd's The Wall or other ones that I'm sure exist. Well, Stop Making Sense, which is one of the biggies. Yeah. Sure. Or that, Richard that, Pryor. Remember that? Ooh, oh, yes. man, was that a good film. That but was an amazing But we, we'll get to that, and we will tell you at the end of the show, for the any of you who don't know, how to answer this question. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but we move now to... The Facts. Budget, $750,000. Really? Yeah. Three, less than a million. Man, guess how much it made. I'm going to go for a hundred. A hundred and fifteen million dollars. Ripes. That makes this one of the most profitable movies, just <laughs> in terms of how much you put into how much you got out of all time. Wow. No wonder they made a sequel. Yeah. Yeah. We can probably talk about that. This this was George Lucas's second full length movie after THX 1138. We all remember that one, right? Well, we do because we're huge nerds, yeah. but one of the producers, Francis Ford Coppola, coming right off The Godfather. This was nominated for, but did not win, any of five Oscars. Mm. Due to the low budget, George Lucas was unable to pay all of the crew members. Uh-huh. He offered to give a lot of them a screen credit in lieu of payment, and they accepted Traditionally, only department heads received screen credit. Giving screen credit to so many crew members has now become a tradition. Oh. Which is why, yes, this is George Lucas's fault that closing credits last so long now because of this movie. There's a whole lot of things that are George Lucas's fault. <laughs> yes. A lot of studios turned this script down initially, not simply because George who? Yeah. But uh, because Lucas wanted at least 40 songs on the soundtrack, which would have cost a lot to get mm. the rights. Universal finally agreed to fund the picture when Lucas's buddy, Francis Ford Coppola, became on board as a producer. Wolfman Jack, play who plays himself in this movie, was specifically chosen by George Lucas to play the role because Lucas remembered listening to him on the radio when he was in high school. Mm. There is a scene that I believe that is cut in most editions of this film. Wolfman Jack makes a pr- on-air prank call to Pinky's Pizza, and the voice on the other end is George Lucas. Ah, I heard it in mine. Did you hear it in yours? No, I, don't, I must either. Maybe I missed it. Oh, yeah. No, I definitely remember it. The Pharaohs, the gang that Richard, <laughs> yeah, talk of the teenagers. Yes, the least menacing gang of old teenagers you'll ever see <laughs> that Richard Dreyfus sort of joins. Talk about the mysterious DJ, the Wolfman, speculating he's either broadcasting from an airplane or a pirate radio station in Mexico. Truth was, Wolfman Jack worked as a disc jockey from 1964 to 1968 for XERF in Ciudad Acuna, Mexico. At that time, it was a 250,000-watt radio station. (laughs) 
that was powerful enough to reach much of the U.S. Yep. It was known for interesting choices in music and disc jockeys with a lot of attitude. I looked it up, and apparently that was something like five times the allowed wattage of yeah. American radio stations because it was literally just over the border. So Yeah. It was considered a pirate radio station as it didn't have to pay FCC licensing fees. Right. And because it could get away without paying royalties because it was in Mexico. Its outlaw nature led it to being the focus of a popular song by ZZ Top called I Heard It on the X. This film is shot in sequence, which is very unusual oh. for movies. Yeah, it's mm. because as the filming goes on, the actors get tired and they look more tired. <laughs> That's what Lucas wanted. Okay. I mean, to be fair, it's not like it goes many places. It's no. It's more or less up and down the same strip, so I can see doing that. Yeah, yep. One of the things I really like in this movie are the cars. Mm. They needed about 300 pre-1962 cars for the cruising scenes, and over a 1,000 classic car owners responded to the ads were interviewed. Mm. Neat. Universal was not impressed with this movie. They thought so little of it. They had no idea how to market it, and there were no stars. True. They thought it would flop. So it sat on the shelf for six months before they finally decided to release it and make a crap ton of money. Man. Yeah. Harrison Ford. Who? Yeah. This is, <laughs> I believe, his second actual movie appearance. He did a lot of TV before this. Initially turned down the film because he was offered $485 a week, which was less than he was making as a carpenter mm. and not enough to support his family. When they upped the offer to $500 a week, <laughs> he accepted. He wow. was also asked to cut his hair for the film. He refused because he said his role was too short and didn't want to ruin his hair. And he offered to wear a hat instead. That's why he's wearing the cowboy hat. So what have we learned from this? Harrison Ford, 15 bucks. That's all it yep. costs. You <laughs> can get Harrison takes. Ford for $15. <laughs> Paul Lamatt, Harrison Ford, and Bo Hopkins were often drunk between takes. What? And had conducted climbing competitions to the top of the local Holiday Inn sign. <laughs> sure. Richard Dreyfus recalls that he was often called onto the set early during camera setups because the plaid shirt he wears for much of the film made an effective test pattern. <laughs> <laughs> Just stand there, Richard, and don't move. And good, thanks. Oh, is it 2 a.m. already? Okay, F strike up the uh, band. We're going to play the national anthem. And Richard, just stand right there. You're fine. Yep. yep. In gratitude for his performance, George Lucas gave Wolfman Jack just a fraction of a percentage point of the net profits. This ended up being enough money to give the Wolfman a comfortable living for the rest of his life. Yep. <laughs> I love that. Me too. You, uh, you're listening, Donald Sutherland? <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, the, he isn't. <laughs> true. Filming was beset by a, a number of misfortunes and disasters. The day before filming was supposed to start, a key unnamed member of the crew was arrested for growing marijuana. Growing? Yes. Oh. On the first night of the shooting, it took so long to get the cameras mounted on the cars that filming couldn't start until 2 a.m., which put them half a night behind schedule. Most of the outdoor footage was to be shot in San Rafael. After the first night, the city revoked the crew's filming permit due to complaints from a bar owner that their blocking off the main street was costing him business. Wait, San Rafael, wasn't that in Touch of Evil? I think, I think it was. so. Yeah. 
They, the shooting then moved to Petaluma, 20 miles away. Ah. On the second night of shooting, a fire in a nearby restaurant brought fire trucks into the area, and the sirens and the traffic jam screwed up the filming. I think Petaluma is where they do the wrist wrestling competitions, according to Peanuts. <laughs> according to Snoopy, yes. <laughs> uh, Charles Martin Smith, the toad, and Ron Howard were both 18 at the time of the movie. They are the only two actual teenagers in this movie. Everyone else was in their 20s, with the exception of the 12-year-old Mackenzie Phillip. Uh, Her- yeah, she was 12. Uh, and Her- Well, she says. I know, but she doesn't say she's 12. She just says, I'm older than I look, which yeah. is like, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah, and Harrison Ford, who turned 30 during the filming. Well, to be fair, he's not necessarily meant to be a teenager. No, he might not have to be a kid. And although Steve, Ron Howard, was supposed to be a year older than Lori, Cindy Williams, Ron Howard is seven years younger than Cindy Williams. Oops. There is a rumor. Let me stress, this is a rumor. That means it's true. There's no confirmation that while George Lucas and an unnamed co-worker were editing the film, the co-worker asked Lucas for Real 2 Dialogue 2, which was abbreviated to R2-D2. Uh. And that, they say, is where it came from. Ah. Yeah. The cartoon movie poster that you may have seen was drawn by the longtime Mad Magazine artist Mort Drucker. Ah. The Folding King. Yep. He also did the artwork for their parody, American Confetti. Uh, uh. Oh, my sides. (laughs) Uh, the produ- Francis Ford Coppola and the other pro- one of the other producer uh, Ned Tannen didn't like the title American Graffiti and wanted it retitled Another Slow Night in Modesto or Rock Around the Block. Okay, good call, George. Wow, because there's one thing you want in your movie is the word slow. Yeah. <laughs> the story takes place in Modesto, California, but he decided not Lucas, excuse me, decided not to film there as he felt it had changed too much in recent years. Ah. Uh. The film was previewed before an audience of, quote, young people in the North Point Theater in San Francisco on a Sunday morning. Perfect. Yeah, with Universal Pictures head Ned Tannen in attendance. In a now legendary story in Hollywood, Tannen was not impressed with the film despite a good audience reaction and called it unreleasable. Huh. Francis Ford Coppola was so mad at that comment, he offered to buy the film from Universal... Some people say he pulled out his checkbook and said he'd write a check right then and there, while the exhausted and burned out and ill George Lucas watched in shock. Huh. You know, uh, I wish, I hope Ned Tanning got fired. Wait, was his nickname Biff? No, I'm afraid not. <laughs> a compromise was finally reached in which Universal could, quote, suggest modifications to the movie. Lucas didn't like that as it took control away from the film, but mostly they ignored the uh, requests. Mm. Now, let's deal with the elephant in the room. It's widely assumed that Ronnie Howard, sorry, Ron Howard, was cast as Richie Cunningham on Happy Days due to the success of this movie. It's actually the other way around. Howard shot the original pilot for Happy Days in 1972. Oh. While the pilot wasn't picked up, ABC aired the pilot as part of its anthology series, Love American Style. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. George Lucas cast Howard based on the pilot. American Graffiti's subsequent success inspired ABC to reconsider the series, adding a greaser character that was based on John Milner. Yeah. The series debuted in 1974. Yeah. Uh-huh. They were um, 
inspired. Yes. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll get also, back to that. You notice they also stole the opening song, Rock Around the Clock. As I said, we'll get back to that. Yeah. Uh, some of the main characters represent different stages from George Lucas's younger life. Kurt Henderson, uh, you know, Richard Dreyfus, is modeled after his personality during USC, while John Milner is based on his teenage racing and junior college years. George Lucas was a street racer. Um, I want to know which part of his life is represented by Mackenzie Phillips. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Terry the Toad Fields represents his nerd years as a freshman in high school, specifically his bad luck with dating mm. and his current voice. <laughs> Lucas turned down offers to direct Lady Ice, huh? I don't know that one, Ooh. but also Tommy, the Who Ooh. movie, and Hair to make this movie. I'm going to go with good. Yeah. He wanted to film in Cinemascope, mm. but it was too expensive. So he, And he decided uh, that uh, the film should have a documentary-like feel and shot the film using technoscope cameras. Ah, mm. technoscope. Yep. That's the other one, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. William Huck. <laughs> I don't know if that it's H-U-Y-C-K. I assume it's Huck. Are you and okay? Gloria, <laughs> and Gloria Katz found the ending depressing and were incredulous that George Lucas planned to only include the male characters in the epilogue. Mm. Lucas argued that mentioning the girls meant adding another title card, which he felt would prolong the ending. Oh. Because of this, Pauline Kael later accused Lucas of chauvinism. Well, I can't see why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure, because, yes, in the Star Wars universe, there are only two women. Um, That's okay. She'll show up as a villain in Willow. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, yes, the character simply listed as White Thunderbird Angel, the blonde and the white T-bird who is not credited in the movie, that is Suzanne Summers. Thought so. Yep. There is so much more. There's a ton of trivia about this. A lot of it's interesting. I recommend you look it up. But uh, right now, we should get to the plot. Yeah. Rock around the crocodile, daddy-o. It's the summer of 1962 in Modesto, California, just as high school is ending and a group of buddies and recent graduates are facing their future. Steve and Curtis are planning to leave the next day for that famous East Coast college. Uh, East Coast you? <laughs> But Curtis having second thoughts, compounded by a vision of a beautiful, unnamed blonde in a white Thunderbird who offers to sell him a thigh master or something. <laughs> he spends the whole night pursuing her, a quest that leads him to a fairly mild gang of car hoodlums, extremely expensive destruction of police property, and an encounter with the legendary Wolfman Jack himself and his popsicles of wisdom. Steve, on the other hand has entrusted his car to his friend, ur-nerd Terry the Toad, who uses his sweet ride to try to impress his new crush, Debbie. For reasons beyond the ken of man, it seems to work. <laughs> Steve is also grappling with his relationship with his longtime girlfriend and roommate of Laverne DeFazio, Lori. <laughs> Meanwhile, ur-fonzie John Milner, a hot rider, somehow ends up stuck with Mackenzie Phillips, I mean Carol, in his car, Rather than doing his best to keep her away from Papa John Phillips, they, <laughs> oh, end, up, they wow. end up, yeah, well, they end up bonding in a weird big brother, little sister kind of way, kind of. If only that worked for John Phillips. <laughs> but who is this swinging in to liven things up? It's Harrison Ford, playing rival hot rodder Bob Falfa, whose first name clearly should have been Al. <laughs> 
challenges John to a race, and somehow Laurie ends up in the Millennium Falcon with him. There's a crash, an embrace, a change of plans, and a phone call from a quasi-supernatural T-Bird angel, closed out by what may be some of the most depressing what-happened-to-them credits in film history. Way to bring it home, George. The film. Well, American Graffiti. American Graffiti. You have never seen this. Nope. I have seen literally the shot where the police car drives away and the back end is pulled out because it's been chained or whatever to something. And yeah, that's it. Yeah, by the way, Mythbusters tried to disprove that to say it was impossible. Yeah. They did it wrong. I I, I read on this, uh, believe it or not, there's an actual blog dedicated to American Graffiti. The car they used was 30 years newer than the police car in the movie, and the one in the movie had a thing called leaf spring suspension, which actually would have made it quite easy to rip off the rear axle. Hmm. Just so you know. I, I'm going to still go with the, the Mythbusters in this one, because unless somebody's actually done it, because I'd heard they actually did have to like saw part of that off to get it to work. Yeah. So if that's the case, then it actually kind of proves their point. But that's fine. It's, it's not meant... I don't think we're even really meant to... Disbel- it's like it doesn't matter. The whole yeah. point is I did it's, something it's, and now I'm a pharaoh somehow. <laughs> yep, he is ruler of all Egypt now. But no, I have never seen this. I haven't really had any interest in seeing it other than it's a George Lucas film. And now I think the circle is complete. <laughs> no, wait. No, it was Spielberg who did 1941, right? I can never remember. I thought that was Lucas. Do you ever see 1941? I have never seen it. Aha! Oh. Oh, no. <laughs> All I know is that John Belushi's in it, and it takes yeah. place in, um, let's see, uh, 19 um, something. And, uh, yeah, there's an amusement park and a fighter plane and, well. Uh, and, uh, all, the only thing I know about, yeah, it was Spielberg who directed it. Yeah. The only thing I know about it is apparently a guy is tortured by being forced to listen to itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini over and over again. I see. Which would make me talk. Yeah. I, so, yeah, I think this is the last film of Lucas's that I hadn't seen. Oh, okay. I could be wrong, but I think it is. And I was just like, eh. Because, quite honestly, I grew up in the 70s, so in a way, I kind of saw this. Kind of. Yeah. Uh, when, well, when did you first see it? Oh, I think I saw it. Uh, I, I saw a chopped up version on TV, and then I saw it uh, on VHS. Okay. I never saw it in the theater. Why, why did you seek it out? Uh, I, first off, I think it was after I had seen the goodbye girl, uh, with, uh, Richard Dreyfuss and I thought Richard Dreyfuss was really fun. Hmm. So I was looking for other Richard Dreyfuss movies and, uh, people had really spoken well of this. And Jaws hadn't come out yet? <laughs> I can't remember. Maybe no. it had, I don't remember which order I saw them in. Or Close Encounters? That I did, that was later, I Or think. Mr. Holland's Opus? Definitely not. Or Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS Part 2? He wasn't in that. <laughs> Favorite childhood film. <laughs> For those who are listening, yes, I have seen Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS. No, I wasn't a child. <laughs> so I want to get this out of the way before we go any further. I had not seen this film. After having seen it, I was like, oh, this is where the 70s came from. Because <laughs> nearly everything in the 70s seemed to be about the 50s at some yeah, point. The strength, the nostalgia of the 70s for the 50s, I don't think we've seen anything like it since. No. And I don't for, rem- yeah. 
for a while there, we were kind of, kind of doing this every 20 years we look back yeah. thing, because then later on, we'd, okay, in the 2000s, we looked at the 80s, but it was so much more brief than this it was. It was. It didn't last, and it wasn't that way. Like, the 80s, people weren't that into the 60s. The 90s, I guess there was some interest in the 70s. It was nothing, I think, like the fascination with the 50s, the music, the clothes, the cars. Oh, my God. Everything. Well, and of course, there's obviously no people in the 50s that weren't white. I think there's one pharaoh that might have been Mexican. He was Hispanic, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's but, it. Uh, yeah. Um, however, and, I got to point out that's historically accurate. This t- I actually, because I, I knew you would bring that up. Of course, I would. I downloaded the California Census for 1962. Really? Really? <laughs> wow! In 1962, the ethnic makeup of Modesto, California, was 97.6 percent white. Ah. So. Yeah, there were literally almost no people of color in Modesto at that time. Okay. So I, I applaud you being... for downloading the census. <laughs> okay. Now, was it fascinating reading? Are you having trouble sleeping, Max? Cause, uh... yeah, it, was kind of, it was kind of interesting just seeing the way the population density changed. But uh, Okay. Yeah. No, it, it's a very white movie. And it's the thing is, the weird part is we keep thinking of this, and I have always thought of this as a 50s movie. Right. It takes place in 62. Yeah, but it's still, it's everyone thinks of the 50s. They really mean the late 50s. They don't yeah, mean the early yeah. 50s. And the late 50s does bleed until we get to like the Vietnam era 65. Yeah, the 66. 60s counterculture didn't come until the mid to later 60s. So yeah, yeah, it's pretty, they're still greasers. They're still sock hops. Yeah. Well, and the bleeding edge between, I don't know, uh, Rock Around the Clock and the Beach Boys is not like a really narrow, rigidly defined line. It's very much a smooth transition. Although, as as we see, you know, Milner, who is an old schooler, can't stand the Beach Boys. He says that's not real rock and roll. Rock and roll's just been going downhill. Yeah. Well, in in his case, rock and roll in that case probably lasted five years. Yeah. Right? Because that, yeah. I wasn't sure what to expect, except I thought, well, it's going to feel like, you know, a 50. I did, you know, I knew Ron Howard was in it. And I think I remembered Cindy Williams is in it. I knew Harrison Ford was in it. But when the film starts and they play Rock Around the Clock, it's like, oh, dear God's happy days. Really? Are you that shameless? Yes, yes, you are. I didn't know about the transition about or the transposition of Ron Howard being. Yeah, no, it's a. I, yeah, I did happy remember that, that being this part movie. of Love American style, which uh, if you don't know what that is, go ahead and look it up and then ignore it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You don't really don't have to. But dear gods, they stole so much. Mel's drive-in. Well, that would be go into Alice. There's Mel had a drive-in. But yeah, it's but no, Al. It's, it's, Ar- it's Arnold's. Arnold's. Yeah. Yeah. Ar- I'm sorry. For- Al was later. That was Al yeah. Molinaro when yep. Pat Morita had the sense to get off that show. <laughs> hey, he made a lot of money on that show. Good for him. As long as he exited before Chachi showed up, I think. Or <laughs> yes. honestly, even Mork, because that oh. was a weird... Oh, that was... Yeah, I mean... Well, yeah. you got to remember, Happy Days is the show that literally gave us the term jumping the shark. Yeah, I remember watching that episode yeah. and being like... The thing that killed me most wasn't that he was doing it, is that he was water skiing in his leather jacket. Yeah, like, that was that was huh? remarkable. <laughs> But uh, let's talk. Why don't we talk about the cast? Yeah, I'll go ahead and bring up the cast. Yeah, I like Richard Dreyfus in this. Although I gotta say, he doesn't quite fit. Everyone I, else is so earnest, but Richard Dreyfus has this this characteristic that you see in a lot of his movies. In that he 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 always sort of acts like 
he's the guy who knows how absurd all of this is, but he can't bring, bring himself to either tell anybody or drag himself out of it. But see, I think that works because that really plays into the fact that his character is like, yeah, I don't think I want to go to, yeah, I have this $2,000 check that I got from the Moose Hall. But yes, I, the, <laughs> the Moose Lodge. The Moose Check. But <laughs> I, I love, that's these. one of my favorite lines. He'll make a fine moose someday. <laughs> a good, solid bull moose, yes. That's when I see Richard Dreyfus. I think bull moose. Yep, no, yep. I think that it really fits because his character, even at the very last minute, is going, I don't think I want to do what everyone wants me to do. I think I kind of want to just stay here. And of course, we, we never really find out why. We guess no. it's fear, but we don't really know of what. Yeah, and it's odd how the how his role in effect transposes with Ron, with uh, Steve Ron Howard, right. who is like, we got to get out of this this you know podunk town. We have to leave, don't you? When when uh, Kurt starts like making noises about, I don't know if I want to go, and you know Steve just loses it. He's like, what are you saying? We've been talking about this for weeks. We've been we got to get out of here. And he really wants to leave. And in the end, of course, he's the one who stays, and Kurt's the one who leaves. Which, quite honestly is really how it feels right. At least it did to me. Because Ron Howard, for all of his skills as an actor, and there are times when he does very well, feels like the guy that doesn't leave home. Yeah. He, and, he looks like the hometown boy who, you know, I'll work at the Chevron and fill my car up for free. Or better, I'm going to stay here and sell insurance because oh, that's God, what he does. That's sad. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that ending part later. Hmm? But yeah, yeah, Ron Howard, the only thing that shocked me is when he actually swears. And I'm like... <gasps> Ron Howard can't swear. Opie, Everyone knows. No. <laughs> Everyone knows that he was with Andy Griffith. He can't yep. swear. Um, he does fine. He feels like a teenager. I know he actually is, which is a nice yeah. change from oh the rest <laughs> of the cast. <laughs> yeah, I think he does a nice job. He's you know the all American boy. Yep. He's he's kind of a jerk to his girlfriend a number kind of times. Of. Oh yeah, he's a bi a couple of times he's a huge jerk when he's trying to get her to have sex with him, you know, give me something to remember you by. Like, wow, really? Well, that too. He starts off with, "Hey, we're both adults. I think we should see other people. It'll strengthen our relationship." Oh god. <laughs> you Anyone know, who's ever gotten that line, ouch. Uh, I think yeah, I, I've got that line. Did you ever get oh, that? Oh, I've line? had that line. Guess what oh, it yeah. meant? <laughs> it meant I don't want to go out with you anymore. <laughs> That's what it meant. Yep. Yeah. I know you people can't believe that, but it, it did happen. It's hard, yep, hard to believe. Hard to believe. You know, Paul. Uh, so, yeah, the two, I guess, leads, if you yeah. want to say, because this movie more or less, Well, I guess Toad is almost as much of a lead. There's really kind of four main characters. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, you know, there's, yeah, there's Kurt, Steve, Toad, and John, or well, Miller. I, I almost want to include Laurie in there as well, because we see almost mm. as much about her as we do about the guys. And quite honestly, I think of all of the characters, she's the most sympathetic. Yeah, I think so. She's the one who is, she's honestly the one who's being the least jerky to anybody. Well, and all she really wants is looking out for what she thought had already been given to her. So I, you know, we don't get a lot of her, but mm -hmm. we get, this is a film that really meanders and we'll get to back to that too. So I would include her and make her in the five okay. central characters. That works. I would. Uh, Cindy Williams real quick. Yeah. Range, yeah. I think is something she cooks on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that being said, she's perfectly nice. Sometimes she can be very delightful. Yep. And I like she's Cindy well Williams. cast in this, I think. Sure. I think so too. The fact that she also ends up in a part of Happy Days 
just uh, goes back to the whole, well, we're just going to steal this and make it a TV hello show. Hello, Levine. Hello, Shile. Yeah. I mean, if Penny Marshall's somehow in the background, I would not be surprised. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who next? Um, let's see. Uh, I think Paul Lamott is actually a pretty interesting character. Who's he? He's Milner. Oh, okay. Yeah. The he's... aging greaser. I mean, aging in that he's you know, just graduated, but... Yeah, but the weird part with him, and this is, I wonder if, why we're, if we're not really seeing a lot of George here, is he's really all about reputation, but when you like get anywhere near him, you realize that he's nothing like the character he's portraying yeah. other people. He's not a badass. He's not, uh, you know, he's not James Dean. No. I mean, Carol calls and says, you're like James Dean. It's like, no, he's really not. He's, And the thing is, deep down, there's like a core of decency about him. Right. Because why would he hang out with Terry otherwise? If he was really that kind of a hard case, he'd be beating Terry up on a on, you know, regular basis, but he lets him ride with him. Well, he's he friends saves with his him. ass at one point, Saves too. his life, basically. Yeah, because he's being bitten, beaten up by um, uh, Frank and Joe, or I don't uh, yeah. know. Yeah, the guys. Yeah. Two guys who are even less teenager than the other people in this yeah. film. Uh, yeah, I'm 40, and uh, <laughs> I think I'm going to beat up some teenagers. Uh, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. And... I, I mean, his relationship with Carol is is kind of cute, although also the way he gets her to tell him where she lives is a little awkward. But here's the only reason that I didn't have a problem with that. He was mm. obviously doing it so he could just take her home. Oh, you knew he wasn't. The audience knew he wasn't serious. And I think on some level, she knew it too. She was just playing for as long as she, because she was way yeah. underage. How she got her sister to take her, I don't know. Her sister, I am sorry, is one of the most irresponsible movie siblings I've run into. I also have to say that I don't believe a single thing that character said, because she kept saying things yeah. like, my father, oh, he never lets me do anything. Uh, It's 2 a.m. and somehow your dad doesn't know where you are. Yeah, yeah. I, and he hasn't act- called the police. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and which leads us to Mackenzie Phillips, who quite honestly, I think does a great job. She's terrific in this. I mean, it's just very sad what happens. It's hard watching because you know what happens to her in later life. Yes, and that is a show called One Day at a Time. Yeah, and, and <laughs> also her dad. Well, we can talk. No. That's Go read about that if you want to. It, it's, it's not a happy story. No, it's awful. And yeah, I didn't actually ever really like her that much in One Day at a Time, although mm. she plays a troubled teen and that yeah. kind of... <laughs> They're hard to do. You know who I actually really like in this, although she, she's not very developed as a character, is Debbie, played by Candy Clark. The thing I like about Debbie is it's quite obvious that she is in charge of whatever's going on, yep. and she's doing what she wants to do. Now, admittedly, she's doing it with Toad, which, um, let's say it's not real hard to convince Toad to do anything. <laughs> It's like a girl wants me to do something. Okay. I mean, Toad is a character I think is of the so-called leads is probably the least developed. He's the most, mm. he's the most cliche. He's just, hello, I'm a nerd. I, I'm, he's a little brother. Yeah. yeah uh, the, the one thing I do not understand, and I think you talked about this in the recap or the, uh, the plot recap is here, have the keys to my car. I won't need it. But yeah. huh? all I figure is these kids have grown up together and they, you know, they're sandbox buddies. That that doesn't go away. I guess, but of course, one of the first things, and we know something's going to happen. Oh, of we course, we do. We know. Yeah, I mean, he does back into somebody very quickly, and he gets away with that somehow. But yeah, uh, the kid playing Toad, I don't know him from anything else. He mm. was fine. Yeah, 
he looks like a template for a lot of other nerd characters. He, he does a decent job. He just doesn't have a lot to do. He is a character that you pretty much, when you're introduced to him, going, how has this guy not managed to get beat up? Oh, here it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and again, but the way he, 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 everything he says to Debbie for most of the night is a lie. Yeah. He's just saying whatever he, he, he has to to, you know, get the girl to... I don't even think he's thinking about having sex with her at the time or making out. It's just, please sit near me. I think it's even less than that. Please don't leave. Yeah. Like, I don't think he even has a goal of any kind. Nope. The fact that nope. she's still there is like all he's hanging on to. It, it, and I think he does fine with that. I don't think that there's a lot for him to do, but as playing a short nerd, he's fine. Yeah. So performances in general, I would say, range from totally fine to occasionally doing a pretty good job. Richard Dreyfuss, I mean, I don't think Richard Dreyfuss has a great range either, but I generally enjoy him in He's fun to watch. I mean, oh, speaking of lack of range, we left somebody out. Oh, who? Harrison Ford. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Who is somehow driving a Chevy, you figure it out. Yeah, I don't know. Driving a Ford. Yes. (laughs) And like I say, his first name should be Al. Yeah. I mean, whose last name is Falfa? Really? I, yeah, that just seems like a last minute. Uh, oh crap! The character needs a name. Uh, yeah, yeah, whatever. I, I bet it back said he said um, Al Falfa. No, we can't call him that. We have to give him something else. Yeah, John I mean, Falfa. He's, he's a plot device. He's not yeah. really a character. Yeah, and he's he, he does fine to, for that. And he's meant to be a threat to whatever tiny yeah, little a, bit of credibility John Milner has worked up in his life. And I think that's the issue with John is John realizes it. He is clinging to this thing. He is the fastest drag racer on the strip in Modesto. And that's it. Yeah, that's pretty much all. That's his identity. Yeah. And he but knows that eventually yeah. someone's going to beat him anyway. And even still, what does that get him? Nothing. And there's some kind of sad foreshadowing when he's walking around the salvage yard with carol he's showing her all the wrecked cars yeah and he's pointing at you know yeah this guy he was the fastest on the strip he was killed by a drunk driver it's so sad when that happens to a driver when it's not even his fault yeah and uh (laughs) spoiler (laughs) yeah that as we find out that's what's going to happen to him yeah because that was yeah that mm. well we did did the actors um and we'll, we'll get to the ending too but what about the middle part i'll some of it, I think, is a lot of fun. I really, I like the stuff with the pharaohs where, you know, Richard Drivers is trying, they've decided instead we're not going to murder you, or I guess in the case of this gang, give you a really bad swirly. Uh, noogie. Yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're, we'll, uh, we're going to make torture you. right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we're going to give you a chance to do something stupid and become a pharaoh. And uh, that part's fun. Yeah, I... I think my looking at it was definitely a case of they were never going to actually do anything bad to him. They would just want to see how they, far they could scare they him. They wanted to scare him, yeah. I'm willing to bet they didn't even know who owned the car. Yeah. And uh, I, I kind of like the lead, the leader of the Pharaohs. That's Bo Hopkins, by the way, playing Joe. Ah. You, he's one of those guys, you you know who he is. You've seen him in every, every he's been in a hundred Westerns. He's been on TV. He's just one of those guys. It's, oh, that guy. He spells a B-O, doesn't he? Yes. Ah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's, it's a weird little diversion, but it's, I think, I think it's necessary for his character because I think it's part of what gives him the courage to decide to actually go. It's fine. I don't, this, I don't know the way I put this. This film doesn't really have a plot. 
No, it's just a slice of life. It's a night in the life of a bunch of teenagers before college. It's, but, it's but, a love letter to a period, yeah. but it's all at a, at a place. wrapped up in one night's act. Because that's what this film is. It's literally, here's a bunch of hours during one night, the day before yep. somebody yep. Two, two of the characters lead for college. And it actually, because of that, reminded me of another film. And I'm willing to bet that that director saw this film and's like, yeah, I, I want to do that too. Do you, do you know what film I'm talking about? Nope. Dazed and Confused. Oh, yes. Okay. I could definitely see that. It's a different... Sort of a 70s version of this. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different goal, I guess, because there's no characters leaving for anything exactly. There's characters that are actually graduating to become seniors and stuff, except for, of course, Matthew McConaughey, whose days at the high school have long since passed. Well, the big difference is in Dazed and Confused, nobody changes. No. And that's the thing that I found really... Like, it drove me crazy the first time I saw it, because it kept waiting. Oh, somebody's going to OD. Someone's going to get drunk. Gonna and, happen. Yeah, yep. there's going to be a bad car. Somebody's going to fall off the moon tower. And it never does, the, because yep. the point of the film isn't about that, because whose life works that way? It doesn't. Yeah. It's literally, hey, this is a moment. These are who these people were. This is what the kind of stuff that happens. And that's what this film is kind of like. It's not- Except the characters do change. They go through some stuff. Terry ends up with a girlfriend. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Steve ends up. Sure. He's going to stay, and clearly he's going to eventually marry Lori, and he's going to sell insurance. Kurt decides he's actually going to take a chance. He's going to not be, because if you remember when he's in the car with his ex-girlfriend, they're most, she keeps talking about how he's afraid of everything. And he gets over his fear and, go, and gets on the plane. I... And in some way, I think this movie is more about him because he's on this whole, in a way, kind of a hero's journey. He meets, you know, he deals with the antagonists who become allies. He meets the sort of Gandalf figure in Wolfman Jack. <laughs> I definitely want to get to him, but that is the lamest hero's journey ever. I walked two oh, blocks, met some guys, and then I helped rob some well, pinball machines. what kind of a, a hero's journey can you do in Modesto, California? Come I've on. never been there. I don't know. Maybe uh-huh. there's all sorts of things. Uh, uh-huh. Real quick, I did a little bit of background check on Wolfman because he's a character that was around when you and I were growing up. Oh, he yeah. would pop up in the weirdest places. Strange stuff. He had a cartoon series. The weirdest thing is... Most of his radio shows were not done where they thought you thought they were done. He actually recorded them elsewhere and sent the tapes. Oh. So he did like the first few years at that Mexican radio station, then moved to L.A., and then would do tapes there and send them back because it turns out there was somebody, there was a religious group that would do ads, and the deal was the radio station got 50% of whatever they took in from their ads, which was apparently incredibly lucrative. Oh, so that's why he's actually playing a, a church choir. And, when, among uh, other Dreyf- things. When Dreyfus shows up. Well, that, that's interesting because as a character in this movie, that's what he says he does. Oh, yeah. yeah he, I, Wolfman records stuff and sends it in. Yep. So he, when all the stories they were telling about Wolfman were at some point actually true, except for the pirate radio station, although or he the, would or later he was, do or that. Or that him being black. Right, yeah, which I was like, really? Anybody thought, oh, I guess maybe they thought his voice, I guess. They thought anybody who didn't sound like Pat Boone was black. Oh, hello, and the next tune we're going to be hearing exactly. is Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and the Comets. I hope mm-hmm. you enjoy this wonderful tune. And now yeah. we're going to have some wild fun with some Matavani records. So, did you find out what his real name is? I did not. I didn't, never wanted to know. Bob Smith. Oh, dear. Robert Weston Smith. Yep. 
Okay. But yeah, which is fine. Um, I like the sequence with him and his melting popsicles. I think he's just like, oh no, man, I'm not Wolfman. I'm just this guy. I also, did you, I'd never heard his real voice before, had you? I had, yeah, actually. I'd seen him interviewed. Now, you may have remembered him probably most famously from his appearance on Galactica 1980. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I managed to blot that out of my memory. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Uh, The fact that this film is more or less plotless, because it kind of is, it has, I guess it has a goal, and that's the goal is to get the two guys on the plane. And in that way, it's only halfway successful, I guess, or whatever. No, it's just a movie where just stuff happens. Yeah, but I do have like certain questions. Like at one point, when Richard Dreyfus's character Kurt is actually really afraid for his life, and at that point, it could actually be a reasonable thing. There is a point where he has every opportunity to get away from the pharaohs. Why doesn't he? Yeah, no, don't know. He I also, just doesn't. I also have to ask two other questions. Doesn't anything ever close in this town? Oh, it's a late night town. Well, because we're watching this and it's like, wait, what time is it? We only find out when he makes it to Wolfman and it's 20 of five. No, so, no. We find out before when Terry is trying to buy booze and he asks some guy, could you help me out um, with the time? Oh, that's right. And it's like quarter 12. That's right. That's fairly early on. Though. Yeah. And then he witnesses a, a robbery. That's a, because, that's oh. a cla- that is one of the classic scenes is where he's trying to get someone to buy liquor for him because he's underage. Yeah. First guy runs off of the money. He, the guy in the store demands an ID. The third guy robs the place <laughs> and just tosses him a bottle as he's running out. But gets shot at, which was Yes, kind there's of... an actual gun <laughs> battle going on. Well, it's not a battle. He's just being shot at because he doesn't shoot back. No, not that we see. No. I do have another quick question. Where the hell did Kurt get a Citroen? <laughs> I don't know. Like, that was just baffling to me. What is he doing with that ancient English car? I don't or know. And why is. is Lori driving an Edsel? Because that's what she's yeah. driving. The, yep. I don't know if you thought this, but when she is split up with Richie, I'm sorry, what, uh, what's his name? Steve. Steve. And she's driving off. Who would drive up next to her? Somehow now passengerless because he'd had a woman with him is Harrison Ford in yeah. what is apparently the baddest car in town now. Yeah. And they look at each other and she finally just makes a gesture. Did you think they were going to race? I thought they were going to race. I did not because we didn't hear anything about the girls racing. I know, but I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. I mean, she's going to lose, but oh, she's yeah. just pulling over. That's <laughs> not how you race. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what did you think about the pacing? Um, I think the pacing is pretty decent. It's actually better than I expected it to be, in, in even seeing it the second time. I'm going to disagree. Uh, you think it slows down too much? I do. I kept looking at it. It's like, how much time's left? Because uh, this no. is close to two hours. It's like an hour 50. And I, partially because I'm used to, in films, you know, something happening, yeah. I felt that it dragged a bit. I, okay. I don't know that it was necessarily uninteresting but I definitely felt the time, so I would, yeah. Well, let me ask you something. What did you think about the uh, white T-bird angel? I'm guessing she was meant to be a symbol. Yeah, was she, she real? Do you think she, that she was actually there? Well, she calls him, so we have to assume she well, was, although he, he could have been dreaming. He could have been hallucinating. He'd been up all night. I think it was meant to be the thing that he was meant to pursue, like it was his sign that I shouldn't just stay put. I should reach for something beyond. And 
This is the one bright moment in the after part of the film where it's like, well, so-and-so died here, so-and-so sold insurance, but he became a writer. So, which... In Canada. Well, why not? Since you speak Canadian so well. Exactly. Ashnak Gurbata look (laughs) and whatever. Please. Um, That's Quebecese. I'm going to say that maybe the first sighting of her is real. And then after that, it's totally up for grabs that he's made her into something. Yeah. She's become kind of a symbol. Right. And I don't think he's ever meant to, to get that goal, whatever it is. And I think even he deep down doesn't ever want to get that goal because that's an end point. And he realizes I need to reach further than that. And especially as a writer, you don't want to write the best novel ever because then what do you do? Yeah. You want to just write the next best novel, the next, and you know, so on and so forth. That's, that's, what was your take? No, that's pretty much uh, similar to what I had. She is, in effect, like she's his muse. She's an almost mythical character that he's sort of pinning all his ideas on. And you know, as he says, she's the most beautiful, exquisite, fascinating creature. He sees her for two seconds and she may or may not mouth, I love you at him. She for does. Reason, we, for reasons we don't know. No. May, and, she just did it because she, she even she's says, friendly. she says, if you're, you know, if you're here tonight, I, I'll be cruising this street or, you know, maybe I'll see you. And the, you, your first thought is, oh, wow, maybe he'll stay because he wants to see her. And then he just, no, I don't think so. Mm. So I, I do think she's more of a representation. Yeah, I would agree on that. But, uh, oh, man, we uh, we burned up the time, didn't we? And yeah. Other stuff, uh, real quick, music is almost a character of its own. And yeah, the soundtrack. Huge. This was unusual for movies back then, that they use so many actual real songs, one after another after another. It really kind of set a trend for a lot of 70s movies. Well, I'm also willing to bet that that $750,000 today yeah, wouldn't even cover the music. <laughs> no, it might cover one song. Yeah. Yeah. But we, uh, yeah, we're just, we're running out of time, so I guess we should probably cut it here. Yeah. The Finish. So, Mike. Yes. You have never seen this movie until now. That is correct. What'd you think? I don't know. It is very much not a film of its time in a way. It would help define its time with the endless 50 stuff, Sha Na Na, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Joni Loves Chachi. <laughs> but it's not, it is very much a, I guess it's a very much an American auteur film, right? It is not Hollywood at mm. all. Uh, the fact that Coppola had something to do with it, that this was sort of an American zoetrope sort of not film, in a way doesn't surprise me. It's not really about anything except his love of that time period, those moments in his life, his the past. golden years of chauvinism, posturing, and juvenile delinquency. <laughs> but, but everyone was snowy white. He, he, well, as you pointed out, 97% of them were. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's doing what he set out for it to do very well. Does it hold up? I'm not sure. Hmm. I would have to say for my money, Richard Linklater does it better. That being said, I don't think Richard Linklater would have done it without this. I also think this film in a way, well, it's obviously besides culturally, was very influential. 
It also bears almost no resemblance to his next film, really at all. Which I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. It's just Star Wars, this ain't. Yeah, no, very true. Like By the, the way, whole, did you catch Milner's license plate? Yes. Well, you brought it up last week, yep. too, but it's like, there's one missing. There's a one missing. Give me a magic <laughs> marker. Gotta put a one in there. Katex 1138. <laughs> I know, you can't have more than six digits back then. I get it. Yep. But I, like, I, I don't know if between here and there, Lucas suddenly developed this lust for the hero's journey. Um, that whole, I can't remember that guy's name who wrote that book. Um, oh, Hero with a Thousand Faces. Yeah, that guy. Uh, I'm blanking. It, that whole thing where he just like zoomed in on that as his blueprint for the next rest of his life. Mm. But it's not on view here. In fact, in a way, it's almost Campbell. a per- Campbell, Joseph Campbell. It's almost a perfect transition between THX 1138, talk about plotless, <laughs> and Star Wars. So, okay. I so. think it's. Interesting. You think it's interesting, but you didn't enjoy it, really. I wouldn't watch it again. How about you? I still think it's fun. I like the performances. I love the music. I love the cars. I'm not a big gearhead. I'm not that into cars, but the cars of the late 50s and early 60s, I just love. I always wanted one. Did you see the smoke billowing out yes. of all of them? Oh my yes, God. Yes, and I'm thinking, my God, think of this environmentally. This is what, and in towns like that, that is what people did. They would drive up and down the boulevard all day, all night in yeah. big cars low to the ground. One thing I will say is the actors within the first 10 minutes of this film have more emotion than all the first six Star Wars films put yes. together. <laughs> yeah, this is one where he actually lets them act. Yeah. As opposed to trying to say, this is exactly what I want you to do. Don't do anything different. Yeah. Yeah. The other, th- the other thing is that the shots are often very, in a way, chaotic. And by that, I mean they don't feel choreographed. Like where the camera's placed, what people are doing... The way the music is set to the scene is doesn't feel overly purposeful, mm-hmm. which I think actually is a positive in this film. It's going with that sort of documentary feel that it's just supposed to be just happening, not staged. Which I think you said is something that he wanted yeah, to do. Yeah, that's what he wanted. So I think that it is a successful effort. It's okay. For me, it's okay. It's not. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I just didn't enjoy it as many as much as some other people like yeah. Um, you. Yeah, or, I do enjoy it. Or maybe as our listeners who might want to answer our poll. Question. Yes, oh, yeah, it's a poll question that I might possibly tell you about again. But no, I'm not going to. I just don't feel like it. That's because you're yeah. scrolling. No, I'm not. <laughs> you forgot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is your favorite concert movie, either music or comedy? And you can let us know by emailing us at us at maxmikemovies.com. Or you can go to our website, maxmikemovies.com, and leave a comment. Or you can leave a comment on social media, on Facebook, under Max Mike Movies, the only social media platform left in the world. And, of course, we are on many podcast apps. All of them. But I checked. We're, we're just about halfway through this series. Yeah. Which means there's halfway to go, which means another movie. Your Mike. math is un. Assailable, I know. Math is hard at at the the beach. beach. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, Miguel, what are we watching next week? Well, next week we're going to watch a film that I really, really cannot believe you haven't seen. And you swear to me, in really horrible language, up and down, you have not seen this film. Which makes you a bigger goonie than it does me. 
But together, that's just, that's just hurtful. That may be. But together, we are Goonies, so we might as well watch a movie about us. No, oh, you really haven't seen the Goonies. I have never seen it. Uh, I've seen a couple of clips, and quite honestly, the clips made me not want to see it. Wow, it is yeah. like a beloved favorite. It's Spielberg, you know. I know. Spielberg. Cindy Lauper did that music video with them, and Spielberg, which I think is German for Mountain of Sport. <laughs> I actually think it is because Spiel, Spiel play is mountain or play. Spiel yeah. can be play. Well, you can come next week and play with us as we watch the Goonies. This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench. Thank you.